Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Daily Bible Exasperated Podcast. I wasn't ready. I just started. I was, I was trying to get myself an order over here. Mr. Trying to jump the gun. I can't. Can I Can I clear my, my throat first? Why'd you stand up to take a, a drink? That's what I don't understand. Because I dropped the cap. You saw me drop my cap. <laughs> drop a cap. Bust a cap. I don't know anymore, man. Whatever, Mr. Advertisement. What advertisement do you have for us today? <laughs> this podcast has been brought to you by Water. Athletic Greens. Water. It's brought to you by H2O. Yeah. Athletic Greens. What even is that? Don't know. Never mind. I don't know. I don't care. It's a It's a macro, I'm sure. And you (laughs) keep track of it on your numbers. All right. Whatever. Yeah. Hey, maybe we should just get straight to the word since we've been going long. Since yesterday, you were all like, hey, let's just do 17 advertisements. And I'm just going to indulge myself and say whatever I want to (laughs) say. Yes. Let's see. Let's let's try that, Pastor PJ. Psalm 112. Let's see what happens. Oh, you're giving the you're giving us a silence treatment now? <laughs> I'm just laying out. Just laying out on it. Okay. Okay. All right. Psalm 112. 113, 114, and 115. That's a lot. It's a lot of But Psalm. they're short. They're short. Hey, uh, Psalm 112 is uh, it opens up with a, a, a phrase that we can find right above it in Psalm 111, verse 10, and that's the fear of the Lord. Here it says, blessed is the man or happy is the man or well off is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So there we see some parallelism in the Psalms where the second line helps us understand better the first line. So the man who fears the Lord is, according to the second line, the one who greatly delights in his commandments. To delight in the commandments of the Lord, as we'll look at, as Pastor Rod said yesterday in Psalm 119, is to put them into practice, to do them. Um, and so blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights in his commandments, who lives them out. Uh, verse four, the light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Just a cool, encouraging verse there about uh, our relationship with the Lord. And again, the, the, the foreshadowing of the gospel, the light dawns in the darkness. We've been talking about that in, in the gospel of John, that the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The light dawns in the darkness for the upright, for those that would see the light and come to the light and not love the darkness instead of the light. And he, God is gracious and merciful and righteous. The one who is is uh, is righteous, the one who is is following the Lord, look at verse 7, has a confidence about him. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Pastor Rod, talk about that for a second. Why are we not afraid of bad news? It's such an interesting concept because I think one of the things that, that guards the heart of the Christian is a clean conscience. Well, we can rest in the fact that we know God runs and rules all things, and anything that happens to us is not really done to us, but for us. We no longer bear the burden of our guilt. We no longer bear the burden of our sin and our shame. We know that all of that's been nailed to the cross. And that's not to say that we'll never suffer the consequences of our sin. If we sin in some egregious way, it doesn't mean that the judge is going to say, oh, you're a Christian. You don't have to go to jail now. That's not what's happening here. But because the heart of the Christian can trust that God is at the, the core of all that happens in his life, he is sovereign, he is sufficient, Man, my heart can be firm. Like I don't have to be wigged out by difficult circumstances. Man, is the, are the taxes increasing? Is the gas going up to $7 a gallon? Man, I don't like that, 
but God's in control. I can trust that He's behind it all and that He'll He's going to take care of us. And in fact, I don't want to I don't want to negate the potency of this psalm. Uh, we might be tempted to truncate or to qualify some of the blessings that we see here. But I think there is something to be said about the fact that blessed is the man who fears the Lord. God is with that person and that woman, that man. He's He's going to sustain them. He's going to uphold them with his righteous right hand. You don't need to be afraid of bad news because the ultimately, God's the one who is going to navigate you through it. God's the one who's going to bless you even despite of it. And even more than that, not only bless you in spite of it, but bless you because of it, mm-hmm. bless you through it. So we can be steadfast and fixed on his being faithful no matter what. And if gas goes up to seven dollars a gallon, we have a guy that works with us that drives a car that plugs in, so he can just come pick us up. He can. He would. I think he'd be happy to pick up anybody and everybody who wants one. Everyone. Email us at podcast at compassntx.org. and we'll forward it over to Mark. We'll. S- <laughs> you put his name out there, okay? Let's dox him. Dox. Let's give him the address. Here's his address: <laughs> one two three four, Main Street, Texas. USA. <laughs> Psalm 113 it gets into a psalm praising God and really praising his incomparable nature. Um, it says there in verse four, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. It, 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 literally, he is exalted. He is a high place. He's above us, which means that he is separate from us other than us. Uh, verse five, who can be compared to him? Who's like him? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down? on the heavens and the earth. He looks down on the heavens, right? Think about that. We conceive of the heavens as something that is far above where we are, and yet God looks far down on the heavens. And again, anthropomorphism here, God is spirit, uh, but the the idea here is the exalted nature of God, that he's so far above and beyond us that we need to sit and be in silence and in awe before him and trust him, um, and then also appreciate his his transcendence and as the psalm turns there his imminence Mm -hmm. because in verse seven it says he this one that is so far above us that he looks down on the heavens he is the one who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and the princes of his people he gives the barren woman a home and he makes her joyous the joyous mother of children praise the lord so you have the transcendence of God, which is his otherness, that he is separate from us and distinct from us and far above us and his imminence because he's with the poor and the needy and the barren. Um, and we can apply that even further out now on this side of the cross to say he's with us through the incarnation and through the cross and through the resurrection and through salvation and through the process of sanctification, even to the point that the spirit himself dwells within us as believers, uh, that transcendence and the imminence are both at work there in Psalm 113. I wonder if which one Christians struggle with more, the transcendent part or the imminence. Where do you where do you think we'd land on that? I, I, man, I just honestly, transparently, for me, it's the imminence, right? It's mm. it's understanding the the intimacy that we can have with God, um, and I think part of that just comes from growing up in the church. I, I grew up in the church, mindful of His holiness and His His majesty and His his glory and you know, God is so far above us and we can't understand his ways and all of these things that that was ingrained at such a young age. It makes it hard to lean into that imminent relationship that we can have with him as, as the God of creation too. Yeah. I wonder for you Christians who are listening, which, whichever one you struggle with, I'm confident that working on both of them will improve the other. It's good for us to, to draw near to God. Uh, James tells us if we draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. And there's also that sense of cultivating, I don't know, a heart of awe and wonder I think as adults, sometimes we can, I, mean, I think we understand the nature of God being holy. We should fear him. We've been talking a lot about that in the Psalms. But I also wonder if there's a time for us as Christians, older, mature people that have mortgages and cars and all these things, to really foster that sense of awe and wonder for God. 
And maybe more of that will help increase that sense of enjoyment of his imminence. Mm-hmm. And then enjoying the imminence will create more of that awe and wonderment. I think that would be a really good thing for all of us. So whatever side of the aisle you fall on, work on both of them. I, aisle. What Is side that, of the aisle? You say, I thought you said owl for a second. Did I say owl? I, I think it just was... I just said I just misheard I, it. Yeah, it's like whichever side the owl you fall on. Uh, yeah, I don't. <laughs> it doesn't make sense in the context of even the conversations. I don't think my brain would have given me the word owl. Yeah, <laughs> I must have said aisle in a funny Io. way. It just aisle. Remember, owl, yes Io. and yes and yes and that's but. the yeah no buts yes yes and, and. you could just the owl you says who <laughs> and who we're talking about in Psalm one fourteen. Now you're getting it. There we go. Is uh, is God again? No, Psalm 114 is uh, just an interesting take on the Exodus. Uh, That's what is in view here. Look at Psalm 114, verse 1, when Israel went out from Egypt. And so there's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the Exodus, but this is praising the power of God in such an artistic way. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The Red Sea, right? The Red Sea, God parted the sea. His people walked across it. The Jordan turned back. That's a little bit down the road when they enter into the promised land. Remember, the Jordan River would, would stand up as well and allow them to walk through to enter into the promised land. The mountains skipped like rams. I, I puzzled on that one a little bit, but I thought maybe Exodus 19 and 20, when God descends on Mount Sinai and the mountain quakes and shakes under right. the, That's the power of the glory of the Lord. That's how I understood it too. Um, what ails you, O sea, that you flee? A Jordan that you turn back? Mountains that you skip like rams? It's it's the presence of the Lord, verse 7 there. And so just a, a cool meditative uh, psalm on what God did in, in and through the Exodus. What's the significance of making fun of a people of a strange language? Verse one, verse one, when Israel went out from each, so it's clearly talking about the Egyptians and their language, the house of Jacob from a people of a strange language. Uh, what's the idea behind that? You think I, I just, this is not God's people. This is uh, uh, another people. This is uh, a people that are, are not part of his redemptive plan as far as mm. selecting, choosing, forming, calling his people out. Um, this is still part of the infancy of the nation of Israel. And he's really emphasizing, I think, at least in part, that this is his people for his own possession here. They're his people, and this people is of a, of a strange language. They're not part of what he's doing. They're not part of the moment. covenant people. Right. The covenant people. Create, highlighting the distinction between God's people and those who are not. Right. Awesome. Right. Yeah, verse 8, turn the rock into the pool of water. You remember that, right? The rock that would flow from the water. Um, so again, just focus on the Exodus and the events therein in Psalm 114. Just keep in mind, as you're reading the Bible, how much the Exodus repeatedly is brought to the fore. Of, yep. It's, it's one of the most, no, not one of, it is the most significant salvific event in the Old Testament. Yep. And it's, it corresponds to God's salvation of Christians in the New Testament. That's yep. called the New Exodus, in fact. So keep this in mind. As you're reading, if it, often, if you, if you see an analogy or an illustration that you're not quite sure of, it's probably going to be Exodus because that's going to be one of the most important, the most important salvific event in the Old Testament. Yep. Yeah, well, Psalm 115. I love this one. Gets into the worth of, of God and the, the futility of worshiping idols. Um, and uh, it opens up there with a, a great cry, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. And then he goes through and he, he really just kind of mocks the, the idolatry of the nations here in verses four through eight, um, when he says they've got mouths, but they can't, they can't talk eyes. They can't see ears. They can't hear noses. They, they can't smell hands. They're, they're just these statues. They don't do anything. They're just there. 
And then he ends with a, a, a chilling statement in verse eight, those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Mm. Um, there's no life in the idol and the, there's a, a lifeless future for those that, that put their trust in him. Life being eternal life with God, um, not, not annihilationism or anything like that to open Pandora's box on that front. Uh, what? Um, yeah. I, sidebar. Okay. I brought it up. So we got to talk about it. Uh, what is annihilationism? Annihilationism is the doctrine that when the, the lost die, they're simply destroyed that there is no eternal damnation. There is no eternal suffering in hell, but that they simply cease to be in their conscious awareness of everything is gone, which does not line up with the rest of the teaching of the new Testament nor revelation, uh, especially the, the, the judgment scene in revelation 20, when hell is the, the, the sea gives up its dead and hell gives up the dead that are, that is in it. And they are thrown into the lake of fire where it's e- eternal suffering and the eternal smoke goes up forever and ever. So the, when it says they become like idols, it's, it's, there's no life to be found in the idol. And I think that's the point of the, the psalmist there that I made way too complicated with what I just said. Can I ask a question about annihilationism since you brought it up? Sure. So one of the reasons why theologians will suggest that annihilationism makes more sense is because it would be unjust of God to punish people for eternity for things that they did in time. How might you respond to that? Yeah, and I I, I gave this illustration recently in one of the sermons that I preached where if you take the same sin, right? Like, let's say you punch someone in the face. Mm -hmm. If you punch your little brother in the face, your parents are going to ground you and maybe tan your backside a little bit, right? Speaking of tanning, last episode. Uh Different kind of tanning. Um, If you punch your teacher in the face, your parents are going to tan your backside. You're going to be grounded, but you're also going to be kicked out of the school. So your punishment escalates. If you punch your local police officer in the face, well, you're going to end up in handcuffs and in the back of a squad car with assault charges on an officer of the peace. So you're in even more trouble. You're also going to get grounded by your parents and you're going to get your backside tanned. You punch the judge in the face, another even greater punishment. If you walk down the, the, the street and you get to the president of the United States and you punch him in the face, it, that escalation of the penalty goes up even more. So it's the same sin punching someone in the face. It's wrong, no matter who, who you do it against. But the person that you do it against, the person that you sin against, their rank, their value, their uh, their assumed um, superiority, th- that's going to impact how much you have to pay for the penalty that that is due your sin. When we talk about an infinitely holy God, our yeah, our sin is finite. It's a one one once in time fraction, infraction rather, and yet it's so great that we can't pay it no matter what. The, the, the amount of, of, of penalty that we would owe is so great and so vast because of his character being so holy that it would take us in, in eternity to be able to, to, to satisfy that, that wrath. In other words, we can't satisfy that wrath. So if someone were to suffer, so I don't know, let's just say someone lives an average lifespan, 77 years, and they sin those entire 77 years, would 10 million years not be enough for someone to pay for their sins or to to suffer under God's wrath and say, okay, now you're done. You suffered enough. That's, I, and, and we could even throw in some of the responses that people would give to us. Well, God's merciful. He's compassionate. He's kind. Why would God continue to enforce that kind of response when he can choose to say, you know what, 10 million years is sufficient time to suffer eternal, eternally or suffer a conscious torment? Right. Because of the, the wages of sin being death, right? And that death is is not satisfied through a, a specified amount of time. It's eternal separation. It's eternal damnation because of his eternal holiness. And if he does not 
satisfy that eternal wrath, if he stops short of that before the, the, the penalty is fully satisfied, then he is no longer just and no longer being just, he ceases to be God. He ceases to be who he is Mm. because somebody has to pay for that sin. And so it's not like in our modern justice system, there's a parole system where it's like you're sentenced for X number of years, but you could get out early for good behavior. There's no getting out early for good behavior. Justice has to be fully satisfied because God is a perfectly just God. And so for that to be the case, we have to pay the full weight of the penalty, which is an eternity apart from him. Right. And I would add only two things to that, Pastor PJ. That was helpful. Um, One of the reasons we struggle with that is because we have a low view of God. Yes. And that's one of the reasons why our church exists. We we seek to maintain a high view of God. We want to exalt the worthiness, the glory, and the grandeur of God. And that puts us in some really uncomfortable places. Because even as we're talking now, annihilationism in our minds might feel more compassionate, might feel more humanitarian. Mm. And maybe that's the problem. Because it's human-focused and it's not God-focused. Right. But if we're going to maintain a high view of God, we have to let God be God and recognize that His um, His holiness is such that, that it is beyond our comprehension and that it is worth suffering eternally because of that infraction, those mm. sins that we committed in time. But secondly, I would say this. Often we think that people who go who die suddenly stop sinning. I, I don't know right. why we believe that. I, I think it's fairly clear in scripture that the weeping and gnashing of teeth that that scripture talks about when it refers to hell um, doesn't only suggest that people are suffering. It sounds like there's anger there. There's vitriol in the heart of the person who is being punished under God's righteous wrath. And therefore, it's not only the sins of the present where they lived that they're suffering for, but it's also perhaps, and very possibly so, the sins that they currently do even while suffering under his punishment. Yeah. 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 Helpful explanation of, of hell there for sure. Um, these idols in Psalm 115 do not possess life, and that's what God does offer us. And so the psalmist's response to them, to Israel and then the house of Aaron and all who fear the Lord, is this, that we should trust in the Lord. Verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, trust in the Lord. He's their help and their shield, repeats that. 9, 10, and 11, he's their help and their shield, trust in the Lord. And that's our answer here, right? I mean, that's it, when we contemplate eternity, and, and especially when we contemplate the eternity of the lost, it should create in us an, uh, a sense of uneasiness. We shouldn't be comfortable with that. We shouldn't say, well, that's fine because I'm not going to be there. And so I'm comfortable with it regardless of who is going to be there, right? Now, it, it should cause us to mourn. It should cause us to grieve. And it should cause us to look at the lost in our lives and say, what do we need to, to, to do? We need to go to them with the message to say, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord because life is found in the Lord. Deliverance is found in the Lord. Salvation is found in the Lord. Um, and so Psalm 115 uh, exposes the, the futility of idols and calls us to uh, trust and confidence in God instead. Amen. Well, let's get to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, but before we jump in there, written by Paul, uh, most likely from Ephesus. We pick that up in 1 Corinthians 16, 8. He says, I will remain at Ephesus, and uh, probably around 55-ish AD is is the time frame of this book being written. Uh, Corinth was located on a major, major trade route. It was uh, a a really well-known city. It hosted the... Ithmian Games, um, which was the, aside from the Olympics, the greatest athletic competition of all time. And, and that 
um, factors into to Paul's writing. He, he references some athletic imagery there, and that's part of the reason why. Uh, known for incredibly gross immorality, so much so that even the pagans understood that Corinth was an area in a realm of insanely bad uh, morals. Um, and that certainly is brought out, even as we see some of that, we, we will see creeps into the church itself. Sadly. Um, had a large temple on the Acropolis there to uh, the goddess Aphrodite, and uh, she had temple workers of the night, we'll put it that way, who would uh, go out and, and uh, ply their trade in the evenings. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Again, that's going to factor into 1 Corinthians as well, chapter 6, um, specifically there. Uh, but yeah, as for the church, it was founded by Paul, most likely second missionary journey is when he founded the church here. And uh, he write to, wrote to address the problem that we've alluded to a couple times already, that the worldliness had crept into uh, the church there at Corinth. So that's kind of a, a 30,000 foot view of, of first Corinthians. Uh, first Corinthians implies a second Corinthians. There's actually probably a, a third letter that was uh, written to the church at Corinth as well that Paul alludes to that we don't have. And so we don't know what that letter said, but it was not part of what God wanted us to preserve as the inspired canon. Otherwise we would have it and it would be in your Bibles. That's right. But in first Corinthians, we uh, open with his typical greeting and then his Thanksgiving uh, where he is uh, encouraging the church there. He says something interesting in verse seven. He says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. He's going to talk about gifts in the church here in first Corinthians, but they're not lacking in any gift as they wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless until the, here's a phrase, day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's the day of our Lord Jesus Christ here. And then in Thessalonians, first Thessalonians, Paul will talk about the day of the Lord. Um, and so we've got two different ones in view. Paul, uh, Pastor Rod, any thoughts on the difference between the day of the Lord Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord in First Thessalonians? So there's a couple ways we could take this, but rough and dirty. The day of the Lord, uh, generally speaking, is the day of the Lord's reckoning. It is the time where Jesus takes full account of all the sin, all the unrighteousness, and deals with it finally and completely. As a as, as you might guess, then, this puts this other one in a different category. Um, we would suggest to you that there's, there's a way to understand the day of our Lord Jesus Christ as being something of a rescue of his people out of the planet, removing them from the place and saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sustain you guiltless to the end. And that end might not be the end in terms of your death, but the end in terms of your time on earth where God says, I'm going to just take you guys up. We might refer to that as the rapture. So... <laughs> It's debated. I'll just say that it's, yep. deb- it's a debated it's a debated concept, but that's kind of the way I lean on this. What about you, Pastor PJ? Yeah, I agree. I I, I do think the rapture is in view here, um, and the the charges of our amillennial friends who say the Bible never says the word rapture are are valid because the Bible doesn't ever say the the word rapture. But I do believe that there are instances where that is being described, and I think this is one of those examples where right. we do see the rapture in view. Well, part of the worldliness that had crept into the church is addressed right off the bat then starting in verse 10, and that is the, the concept of these divisions that had crept into the church. The, the church was, was factionalizing around the, their favorite pastors or Messiah in one of them because there's some that are saying, hey, I, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, read Peter there, and some that are going, I follow Christ, right? <laughs> They're the ones that are like, I'm don't, Jesus only, buddy. Don't label me. <laughs> I'm a Jesus follower. Yeah. I just, I'm not a, I'm a biblicist. That's what I am. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian. I'm a biblicist. Yeah, whatever. Okay. You, you keep your, your no labels and, and, and will be understood by people. But they go on. He says, look, what are you doing? Is, is Christ divided? Was, was, was I crucified? Was that, did I, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And this is interesting. Those of our, um, 
well, not our ilk, those outside of our ilk that would preach baptismal regeneration, which means that in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. They've got a problem with Paul here because Paul says, man, I'm thankful that I only baptized a handful of you. And he, he he's kind of funny writing stream of consciences. He's like, yeah. oh yeah, there was that family too. I guess I baptized them too. But aside from that, I don't think I baptized anybody else. <laughs> that is funny. And look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay, if you're going to argue that Baptism is necessary for salvation. Why would Jesus not have sent Paul to do both, preach the gospel and to baptize people? So I think you see Fair question. tacitly here that when Paul says, Christ only sent me to preach the gospel, that I don't think Paul would say that that his job was only to do half of the, the work to see someone saved. Mm-hmm. He is in fact going to argue against that and the rest of where he goes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the gospel is everything necessary for salvation. It's the, it's the wisdom of God for those who are being saved. And so I don't think that uh, there's there's grounds scripturally to, to preach that someone has to be baptized in order to be saved. Absolutely. And then just to be clear here, baptism is the response of our, our faith. Right. It is what God calls us to do. So Jesus said we should be doing, and that's even part of making disciples, as Matthew 28 says. But baptism itself is not a salvation event. It reflects what has happened on the inside, but is an act that we do on the outside to showcase that. Right, right. Some people have called it, they're summed it up, outward expression of an inward reality. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. From here, he goes on to a a pretty well-known passage in chapter one and then into chapter two, which we will get to in our next episode. But uh, in chapter one, just talking about the contrast of the wisdom of the world and the foolishness of the cross. And he highlights it with the the contrast of the the Jew and Gentile, the the Jew wants signs. And we've seen that in the gospels. They're saying, what signs are you going to do to show us why we should follow you? And Mm. and the, the the Greeks want um, want wisdom. They want they want the the evidence there, and uh, and the, the the gospel is neither. It's it's not sitting down with the philosophers at the round table of Greek philosophy to to argue at that stage, and it's also not there to do a bunch of signs and 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 tricks to convince somebody to believe that way. It, it cuts through both of them in its simplicity, and in its simplicity, it's it's the message that saves the the, the lost is the, the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of the world. In uh, verse 25, the foolishness of God is, is wiser than men. Um, he goes on to, to explain what that looks like then in verses 26 and following. He says, well, consider your, your own background. He said, you guys weren't wiser or uh, powerful or noble. <laughs> Not very complimentary. No, it's kind of a backhand there. Yeah. Uh, but God chose what is foolish to shame the wise, what's weak to shame the strong, what's low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And here's the reason for all of this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Boom. Yeah. That's Paul's whole point in this, is the gospel cuts our legs out from under us and humbles us because it leads us to the place of saying, I can't do it. I need Jesus. What a good reminder that is for us, because often there, I mean, there are Christians in our midst who are, who are powerful and are, you know, from a noble class, you might say they have a pretty decent standing in terms of worldly status. They have money and a nice car. They're wise guys. They're wise guys. And yet the, this, the goal of, of God's salvation is always that the glory be brought to Jesus Christ. Any church that is is willing to accept the glory for the leadership or for the people is misguided. It's ultimately going to be about the glory of Jesus Christ. So I'm stoked about our church, Pastor PJ, and I love that you preach Christ all the time. That's something that mm. we want to continue doing because that's really the Spirit's purpose. He wants to bring glory to Jesus, and that's what we as a church want to do as well. Man, if I ever stop that, it's your job to take me out and take my place. Man, I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally kidding. You answered way too quickly. I am one. totally kidding. No. I do not want your job, but thank you. Uh, it's for offering. 
but to connect it back to the divisions point, I mean, that's why Paul's, it goes here right after talking about the divisions because he's saying rather than making this about us, about Apollos or about Paul, it's not about us. In fact, the gospel's very purpose is to be all about Jesus and not about us. So he's calling the church at Corinth to, to get this right off the bat. So this is one of the, the things that he's writing to correct, one of many that Paul's going to write to correct to the church in, in Corinth. Church in Corinth is an interesting one, uh, just as, as we wrap this episode, because there's a lot that's wrong with this church, and yet it's a church. And mm. there are believers that he addresses as those who are sanctified at the in the opening of this, those saints in the church there. And so there, it's it's... It's a sticky one. It's a reminder that that our church is not a place of, of perfect people and that until Christ comes back and calls us home, we're going to live as regenerate amongst unregenerate within the walls of the church. And we need to make sure that as believers that we are are trying as, as best we can to be that pure and spotless bride as we await the coming of, of the bridegroom for the church. And so we need to be careful about guarding ourselves against worldliness. Corinthians also reminds me that the, I mean, Paul chastises them for being so influenced by their culture. And I think how easy it is for that to happen. And it's just as easy for our church as it is for any church, Corinth or otherwise. So I think we should, as a church, as we read this, understand that, yes, every church is going to be filled with people that are imperfect and sinful in this way or that way. But with that, that's not a call for us to be lethargic and lazy about right. about that truth. We should say, Lord, what do we do? Help us to not be that. We want to be on our A game. We want to do what First Corinthians chapter nine says. We want to box as not as one beating the air. I want to discipline my body and keep it under control because we want to be qualified according to what Christ has says. We want to do what Jesus calls us to because we want to please Him. So, right. Don't let that discourage you. Let that encourage you to take up arms, to be bold, to be aware of the fact that you can be easily influenced by your culture, and you need to fight back against that. Right, right. Great way to do that is staying steeped in the scriptures. And so make sure you join us again tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Bye, y'all. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Thank you.